if you're a director and if things are going well, it's really easy to lose any sense of balance in your life. You start believing the hype, you start believing the nice articles, you start believing the box office or the money and all those other things. But with Serena and Sophie Tess, Charlie and Coco, I'm never confused about what's real and what matters. You're listening to Skip Intro with me, Krista Smith. As a filmmaker who prides himself on creating art from a place of joy, it's not a surprise that Sean Levy's list of credits are brimming with humorous, heartwarming stories. He also happens to be a girl dad of four amazing daughters, so that might just be contributing to his cheerful outlook. After putting himself through film school as an actor, Sean quickly found his groove as a director in the family comedy space with films like Big Fat Liar, Cheaper by the Dozen, and The Night at the Museum franchise. Alongside his production company, 21 Labs, he's helmed fan favorites like Free Guy, Date Night, and The Adam Project, in addition to producing critically acclaimed titles like Arrival and Stranger Things, for which Sean has also directed numerous episodes. Now he takes on an entirely new challenge, a series adaptation of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, All the Light We Cannot See. It's a significant turn for Sean, who has yet to take on a period piece or an epic drama. However, he's gone to incredible lengths to do this beautiful story justice. Papa, Uncle Etienne, if you can hear me, Please come home. The bombs are falling now, and I think the Americans have come to free us at last. Uncle Etienne, it's not just that I'm alone here. I'm also very worried about you. You said you would be gone for one hour, but it's been days. If you're hiding from the German soldiers, use the bombs to get back home. And Papa, You said you would be gone for six days. It's been more than a year. But wherever in the world you are, if you can hear me, I love you. Well, it's great to see you, Sean. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. All the light we cannot see. I emailed you right after I saw this because I just was so moved by it and I thought it was just perfectly done. Well, first of all, thank you. That's very generous of you to say. I, I What I can't remember, Krista, is whether you came to this series as a fan of the book like I had or were you coming in cold? I was coming in cold, which is what I want to talk to you about, because this is obviously this book won a Pulitzer Prize. It's incredibly popular. How did you find it? And then how did you manage to get the rights? And, you know, tell me a little bit about that journey, about getting it made, because as we know in Hollywood, nothing is easy. It's another story of patience and tenacity. And and when I say another one, the project where I first learned those attributes that I don't possess naturally, (laughs) um, maybe a little more tenacity than patience. Um, But I remember I first met you at Telluride when our movie uh, Arrival was premiering. And I remember you were there because I think you're longtime friends of Amy's. Yes. Uh, and, and I remember seeing you there. And that was another project. That that one took five years from us having read the short story um, and spending years where just nobody got it. Nobody wanted it. No one got it. Uh, and we finally 
put it together and got it made. All the light we could not see was a different situation because when that book came out, everyone got it, everyone wanted it. And I feel like the whole world, myself included, everyone who read it became sort of instantly obsessed. And so I read it over a vacation. And I remember coming back from vacation and marching into the office of the then um, chairwoman of 20th Century Fox, Stacey Snyder, and saying, I am desperate to do this book. And she go and I remember getting the bummer news that uh, Scott Rudin had already optioned it at Fox Searchlight to adapt it into a movie. And I just kind of went back, tail between my legs to my office, and I said to all of my colleagues at 21 Laps, which is my production company, let's all keep our eyes and ears attuned because you never know, you never know. And so sure enough, three years later, maybe more, all the light we cannot see was busted development, not for lack of trying on the part of Searchlight and talented writers and producers, but it's so much story that they couldn't figure it out as a movie. And so Dan Levine, who's one of my partners at 21 Laps, made me aware of the rights reverting to the novelist. And so we jumped and we jumped with a point of view, that being there's this new form, right? It used to be that there's movies and movies are the top of the mountain and the kind of glamorous outcome. And then there's everything else. But in recent cultural history, this form of the limited series has been ascendant. We've seen it done exceptionally well, whether it's Queen's Gambit or Chernobyl or more recently, you know, Last of Us. And so I got a meeting with the novelist, Anthony Dorr, and I said, I don't want to condense your book. I want to do justice to your book. And the way I think we do that is in this long form format. Maybe it's four episodes, maybe it's six, but if you'll give me the privilege of running with it, I'm going to come back with a screenwriter who is deserving of this source material. And let me give this a shot. And he did. And that was the beginning. Um, and that's what led to that screenwriter, Stephen Knight, um, whose work I knew from Peaky Blinders, which mm -hmm. he both created and wrote, if not all the episodes personally, the majority of them. And Stephen got it and said, well, I'm going to write all of it. And uh, I remember saying to Stephen, okay, so how many people do you want in your writer's room? What He's like, no, 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 I'm going to write all of it personally. I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to write it. And he did. And as soon as I read episode one, it was so moving to me that I realized, oh, I, I can't just produce this. I need to direct this. And I also need to direct all of it because I didn't want to share. I was instantly possessive of this beautiful material and I wanted to tell the whole story. Uh, and so that's what we ended up doing. Oh, and I think it shows. I mean, how long did it take him to crack it? Was there any moment where you guys had that dialogue creatively about what do we have to keep in? What do we lose? How long, et cetera? It was, there was, a, I remember a specific conversation when, when we first started, Stephen said he thought it was six episodes and I said, great. And Netflix, uh, who had bought the rights to the book and we knew this is going to be a Netflix series. They said, great. And I think somewhere, it was many, many months later, Stephen was finishing up episode two and he called Dan Levine and I, and he said, I don't think it's six. I don't want to be one of these shows that dilutes pacing and story density just for the sake of episode count. 
because without naming names, I think we've all watched those shows mm -hmm. that clearly should have been fewer episodes or shorter. And uh, and and I remember talking to the folks at Netflix and saying, I know you were promised six episodes, but what if it feels like a better four episodes? And they said, let it be the number that the story wants. And so that was the extent of that conversation. And, and it really, it's a luxury, right? That we're not serving runtime regulations and episode count regulations. And so they are a full episodes, uh, to, to your point, Krista, it's, we wanted, I guess, partly inspired by my experience producing Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. I wanted episodes to feel dense I wanted them narratively dense. I wanted them character rich. And I wanted them to end with a final 60 seconds that had no other possible outcome but to click <laughs> next episode. I remember wanting that. And I remember thinking, wow, Stephen Knight is really delivering on that. <laughs> Mission accomplished. I've seen it multiple times. This brings me to my next question. You're like almost obnoxiously accomplished as well as like handsome and educated and a girl dad. I mean, it, it almost gets to the point where it's like enough already. Stop after a girl dad. We got it. Okay. We first of all, we should lead with girl yeah. dad and then we stop talking. Right. But go on. You're saying <laughs> such nice things. <laughs> um, but what what felt like the right time for you in your career to take on, you know, this is not only is it a period piece, it's a, it's an epic drama with huge scope. And, you know, we're at war. You know, it's the tail end of World War Two. It's a costume drama. It's location. But you're also busy. You're talented. You have a lot of options. What made you say, no, this is for me now? What spoke to you beyond a good script or well, that that wow, that great question. I'm going to try and give you a relatively concise and cogent answer. Um, let me start by saying that ever since my career started, and I first got successful in comedy and family comedy, all I ever wanted was to get the chance to tell a range of stories that reflect my own taste as an audience member, and that's not one thing. I love comedies. I also love straight up dramas. I love thrillers. I love period pieces. But the thing about all, I guess, adult life, but certainly our entertainment industry is that if you get seen and successful at something, you, it's very easy to get locked into a certain perception of what you do, what you reliably deliver. And and I guess I was always scared of that happening because for many years, I made a lot of family comedies like the night at museum movies and the better they did the more opportunities they got in that lane but that was never the whole story of me and it was definitely not the totality of what i wanted to do and so i guess that i got to a stage of my career where i i became more confident that the work wouldn't dry up that's for starters <laughs> the general base level of anxiety and neuroses was dialed down a bit and I started having a more clear barometer on, okay, I'm gonna say yes to direct things that I can't resist. It's as simple as that. I'm not guided by genre, tone, format. Uh, if I can resist it, the answer is no. And if I can't resist it, then the answer is yes. And so for me, it was a, a generalized desire to explore different parts of myself as a storyteller and the irresistibility of this material. and. If I'm being super micro, I would add that the 
the father-daughter heart, to go back to the girl-dad component that you mentioned, both the novel and this show are about many things, but at its heart is a relationship between a father and his daughter. His daughter happens to be blind, but it's about the fierce, protective, and empowering love between a dad and his girl. It defines my adult life, and that really spoke to me. And so I guess that was one of the first kind of anchoring themes that made this irresistible to me. Mm. Well, let's talk about that father and daughter, because the daughter is a discovery in both the actress that plays her as a grown-up, Aria, and then Nell, the actress that plays her as a young girl. Mark Ruffalo plays the father. As beautiful as this series is, it is the casting here that brings you into, you are so vested in these characters. Mm. It's the character work and the cast that plays them that you are just, you're in it. You are casting actors that were vision impaired or legally blind. That in and of itself is something different. You've never worked with actors that are blind before. How was that relationship between director and actor? It was the same as all movies and shows I've directed in that I don't know how to do my job sitting behind a camera or a monitor. I need to be in it emotionally connected with my actors. And that's true of Ryan Reynolds and Hugh Jackman, with whom I'm making the new Deadpool Wolverine film. Um as it is when I'm working with Aria, who had not only never been on a set before, I should say Nell and Aria have both never acted professionally before. Aria had never even auditioned before. And so so already you're dealing with a true rookie, which means everything has to be learned on the job in front of 300 people. So right there, that's unimaginably challenging. But to do that with one of your, you know, Aria is legally blind, now, as is Nell. And so the way that I communicated, the way that I built the shooting environment was necessarily different. So thankfully, I like words. That's probably somewhat evident already <laughs> in our conversation. But a lot of when I direct, I'll do with my hands or I'll do with my face and I'll meet eyes with my actor and I'll maybe convey something with my eyes and they'll get what I'm going for. What I found with Aria and Nell is uh, what I said became more important. Uh, speaking concisely about what I was asking for was critical, but also um, Aria in particular is very energy responsive. So giving a note from across the room, I guess that could have worked, but not nearly as effectively as what we discovered, which is I would walk and I would be three inches from her and we'd lean our heads into each other. So I'm talking right into her ear. She's feeling my energy, my note, my directorial adjustments, not for the crew to hear. It's for her to do her job better. And the great thing about Aria, even though she was brand new to this, she said to me very, very bluntly at the beginning, she said, help me be great. I don't know how to be great, but I know I want to be great. So you be honest with me and tell me how to be great because that's what I want to deliver for you. And that was kind of, that was the the table setter of a process that was really collaborative and, you know, not to get too deep into the ancillary impact, but it changed the way I view the world, certainly around the issue of blindness, but, but around the way that we navigate the things we take for granted and, um, and the kind of blind spots in our empathy that are 
naturally occurring if we never interact with people who have radically different experiences. And I think that applies not only to blindness, but to all kinds of experiences and their differences. And so that was that that piece of it changed me as a human being. Mm. And she is great in it. And to think that she was a student getting her PhD, I mean, she couldn't have been further away from being in front of a camera and acting on a giant set being directed by Sean Lee, which I just think is just amazing. And I love that sense of discovery. Also, Lewis Hoffman, definitely an American discovery. I mean, I remember seeing him in yeah. Dark, and he certainly um, worked a lot as a, as a kid in Germany. But he is equally as as you know, gifted here. These two, con- you know, conflicting stories that are just interwoven in that tension and you feel the other one when you're, even when they're not in the scene and they haven't met yet. Some of that I'm going to credit to the novel because the novel, I remember being struck by this at the time and having reread it several times since, it has these short chapters that intercut between Werner and Marie. And so the feeling when you read this book was, oh, this is a destiny love story about intersecting fates, strangers from across the spectrum of this war-torn world who will only meet once for less than an hour. But it may very well be the most defining intersection and relationship of their, certainly of their young lives and maybe their entire lives. So that's in the book. And I wanted to convey that by the, by building this kind of inexorable uh, momentum towards this gradual intersection. And Lewis was one of hundreds and hundreds of of young actors, most of whom, as I recall it, were German. Uh, and I have to say the, the talent pool among German actors I don't know that I realized as thoroughly as I now do how brilliant um, German actors are. Uh, And Lewis just kept making it round after round of callbacks as it went from 60 candidates to 30 to 15 to eight to four. And every time he was never the flashiest. He was never the one with the most idiosyncratic, quirky tics, you know, the way some actors rely on. He just had this innate understanding of this character's uh, goodness, ethical center, authentic love of art and beauty and facts, not opinions. And all those just intuitive connections that Lewis made with this character, Werner, resulted in a performance that I agree with you. I I helped Lewis. But I was also, Lewis was a gift to me. He came ready every day and and he was already great. I was just the lucky director who gave him the part that's going to show the world. Mm, yeah, he's he's fantastic in it. And also you have Felix Kammerer. I think I'm going to mispronounce his last. Did I get it right? I actually think that his actual last name, he is credited as Kammerer in, in uh, All Quiet on the Western yes. Front. But when I auditioned him, I'm pretty sure, and I hope some fact checker will check to say his name was Felix Krumthauer. And I remember thinking that's the greatest last name ever. (laughs) He might have simplified it for American audiences, um, but I'm going with Krumthauer, even if I just... And I'll go, uh, yeah. I'll go with Felix because that's just easier for me. Exactly. But but yep. but he was equal as good as I said. You have a very deep bench here: Hugh Laurie, Marion Bailey. I mean, there's a deep bench, um, and you kind of always have that in your films. I feel like you're you're really good at 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 casting, and um, it feels like you're 
you're an actor's director because you were, wait for it, an actor yourself at one point, Sean. <laughs> yeah, we're ancient, truly ancient <laughs> at this point. Um, although I, I think my my small role in 30 Rock is still floating around the internet somewhere. Um, I was like in high school, in college, I was acting a lot. And then in college, I started directing. And I went to school with an actor who is very famous and accomplished named Paul Giamatti. And I remember first Paul and I were in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest together. I was Billy Bibbit and he was McMurphy. And I remember sophomore year, I'm like 19. And I remember being in those performances thinking, oh, wait a second. This is what great looks like. I'm okay. Sometimes I'm pretty good, but now I see what greatness looks like. And I want to find something I can be great at. And I had this sense, even at that age, that it wasn't going to be acting. And by senior year, I was directing Paul Giamatti in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And so that's the evolution of my pursuits. But it is true that I think we're all a little bit what we start as. Mm-hmm. Um, and and my favorite part of the job is still my actors. And And people sometimes get surprised to hear that because I've done a lot of action movies and there's a lot of you know, kind of spectacle and comedy and um, visual effects. And I've learned how to do all that because it's part of telling the big tapestry stories I like to make um, and the populist stories I like to make. But boy, give me two actors and a well-written scene, a great cinematographer at my side, and that's my happiest place. And so to do All the Light We Cannot See, it is my first drama. Right. Like there were moments of drama in Adam Project, but it was still a sci fi Amblin adventure. There's moments of drama in This Is Where I Leave You or in Real Steel. But to do a straight up period piece drama was such a treat. And as someone who I think I'd made 13 movies before I made this series, and I always imagined that it would be this very gratifying experience to simplify my priorities and to make them purely aesthetic and the writing and the acting. And so this project allowed me to do that. And I, I found it just very, very fulfilling. So I'm, I'm glad that the results landed for you. And how is it to boomerang now to do a big giant action movie? You're back with your guy, Ryan Reynolds. And, yeah. you know, like I think it's the biggest boomerang <laughs> that you could ever engineer. It's amazing because Actually, I lied when I used the expression happy place because Ryan clearly is my happy place. Um, And that collaboration, this is our third movie together. And um, that remains so just easy and intuitive between us. And I have to say, I mean, we're in a pause right now as a result of the current strikes, but uh, it's been incredible. We spent months uh, honing the material and we've been filming with, Hugh Jackman, who's our other close friend, and the stakes are high, the expectations are high, um, but every day is fun. Mm. And every day you're laughing your ass off uh, because Deadpool is just one of the truly great characters. And it's also a beautiful thing. In a way, I feel this way, by the way, about Aria in All the Light, and I definitely consciously think it every day on the set of Deadpool. When you have Hugh Jackman playing Wolverine and you have... Ryan Reynolds playing Deadpool. Sometimes a performer finds exactly their sweetest of sweet spots. 
And I feel like Hugh and Ryan did so with those iconic characters, which is a big part of why those characters have become cinema iconic. Similarly, I think that Arya was this Fulbright scholar, PhD candidate in rhetoric out there living a life, but this was waiting for her. This was, again, to go back to that, that notion of a inexorable destiny. I feel that, boy, how can I dispute that Arya was made for this opportunity. And uh, and I love seeing the results. Mm. Well, let's talk about another one of those, another little series that isn't Deadpool, but it's called Stranger Things. Oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> let's talk about that little and uh, Millie Bobby Brown, Matt and Ross Duffer, like, like that to me. And also the fact that you have directed, this is, keep me honest on this, that you have directed episode three and four of every season. That is correct. And is that on that purpose is. or is that just the way it happens to work out? It, the first season, it was completely uh, happenstance. The plan when we sold Stranger Things, and bear in mind, like the fact that we even sold Stranger Things felt like a small miracle at the time because many, many, many networks, streamers, studios had seen that script by two unknown twin brothers who had you know, just started their 30s. <laughs> Nobody got it. Nobody wanted it. And I read it along with, again, Dan Cohen and Dan Levine, you know, our team at 21 Laps. And it was so undeniably special. I didn't know if anyone would watch it, but I knew it would be great. And uh, and the plan once we sold it was the Duffers were going to direct every episode. And they got halfway through filming episode two when they basically sent up a flare into the night sky and said, Sean, we're, there's no chance we're gonna have time to write the rest of the season. Um, what do we do? Cause we can't just shut down and have everyone wait. So I said, I'll come to Atlanta and I'll do episode three and four to buy you time to write the second half of the season. And that was just fluke. Little did I know that that was the Christmas lights episode. That was the Demogorgon first coming through the wall episode. I lucked out. And then the Duffers and I were just superstitious enough that we stuck with that formula uh, every year since. And, you know, I just, I, I love that slot because it's every year it tends to be the pivot point between welcome back, here's the circumstances, here are the characters, here's a few new ones. Now shit's going to go off the rails. Episode four is always where things get a little bonkers. Um, maybe never more so than in Dear Billy, which was my episode four last year, and the now infamous Kate Bush sequence. I just love to think about all the money she made because of that song just popped right back up to the top 10 and on everyone. Well, she was sitting at home. I think that I heard that she made more money in this year of Stranger Things 4 than she had when that song was a hit in the 80s. And the fact that it was just, it was the song that felt right, and we knew it as soon as we played it, that it would work for that sequence. But never, ever can you predict, you can never predict when something will catch fire in the culture, right? Whether it's Barbie and Oppenheimer this summer or a hundred other examples that you and I have lived through mm -hmm. as students of the game and as ingesters of story and culture. Mm -hmm. um, but when it does, it feels like a miracle every time. And the way that Stranger Things has captivated such a wide demographic and in hundreds of countries is still a little crazy to us, but um, not something we ever take for granted. 
Oh, launched all those careers, brought a few back to life. I mean, yeah, no, I, I it is extremely popular in my household. So I I like to say I'm a little bit of a student of Stranger Things. And I love uh, I love the discover of Millie Bobby Brown. It's amazing. And I get to talk to her pretty much every time there's a, there's a yep. new one. We catch up with each other. And, you know, at some point she'll be 30 and I'll be really old. And I'll be like, wait, what happened? You were 12 when make, we met. Just, uh, <laughs> my only prayer at this point is that we make season five before her 30th yeah, birthday. Right. I, I, I'm sh- I think we're going to squeak in under the wire. But yeah, meanwhile, I mean, life happens fast. And uh, and we have this fifth and final season so rare and to go. And, uh, and, and it's so important. The Duffers have always, even when they were those 31-year-old twins that no one, you know, was paying attention to, they've always been about this idea of sticking the landing. Every episode has to do it. Every season has to do it. But now we're coming up on the series ending. And our North Star is to stick the landing with the series finale and the final chapter. Uh, and, and we're looking so forward to making it. Mm, I can't wait. I can't wait. All right. You're Canadian, first of all, which means you're nicer than Americans already. <laughs> it's true. You, you notice the silence now? Because yeah. that... Can't dispute that claim. You're not named Ryan, although there are, it seems like a lot of Ryans, but they're, they're, all they're nice. in their 40s and they're all nice and they're all from yeah. Canada. So you're Sean, you're a little bit of an outlier, but you have four daughters that we've mentioned many times now. And I want to talk a little bit about those daughters. I read, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, about how you're not someone that needs to be defined by I'm the tortured artist. And I love how much joy you've been able to convey in your products, how much connection and humanity and empathy and stuff and and even while you're laughing you're you're getting you're taking something away from that and i wonder how much of that joy has stemmed from being surrounded by the women in your life yeah no i think and also because i have sons just so you know so i'm really curious about this (laughs) your home is unimaginable to me i i like immediately i'm assuming it's way smellier than my home um probably a bit messier um but i am told that the mutual infatuation between fathers and daughters is rivaled only by the one between mothers and their boys. So my hope for you is that that might be a little bit true. Um, I think that uh, I think that it's a twofold answer. The first is that I think that because my own childhood, which had an early divorce of my parents and then um, a mom who had her issues with um, both depression and alcohol uh, it was not my home life was not joyous and so i just somewhere along the way i made a decision that my life was going to be and that the way i live was going to be willfully positive and if i'm lucky enough to make things and put them into the world they are going to be also joyous and positive and connective so I think I was shaped a lot by wanting the opposite, which I think a lot of us are, right? Some of us want to emulate our childhood and some of us want to break patterns uh, with the childhoods we shape as parents. Um, The daughter component, I I can't answer it without also the wife component because Serena, my wife, we've been together almost 30 years and we have these four girls. And I think cumulatively these five girls and women in my life have made it impossible for me to ever lose my way, for me to ever 
It's so easy if you're an actor, if you're a director, and if things are going well, it's really easy to lose any sense of balance in your life. You start believing the hype, you start believing the nice articles, you start believing the box office or the money and all those other things. But with Serena and Sophie Tess, Charlie and Coco, I'm never confused about what's real and what matters. And I like making things that we as a family can experience together. And that piece of it, you know, to go back to Stranger Things, one thing that I'm shocked I get at least once a week for almost a decade now is some teenager or kid or parent saying, thank you for Stranger Things. And I'll say an obligatory, oh, you're too kind. And they'll go, no, no, no. Thank you because it's the it's the only time in years that I can remember where we all shared something together. So often now culture is siloed, right? Our kids are on TikTok doing this. We're reading this. We're what? But Stranger Things and hopefully Free Guy and hopefully Adam Project and hopefully All the Light We Cannot See and hopefully Night Museum, all these things that I've made, the intent is to is to connect people with the work, but with each other sharing the work. And so having this big connected family has informed my desire to do that with my storytelling. Hmm. Now, do you think you have an actor or director or producer in any of these four? I definitely have one producer. Um, currently, the other three could give a shit about what dad does for a living. Um, Although that's not quite true. It, it does give them uh, the occasional thrill. But my firstborn, she, I remember taking her to movies when she was seven and eight and leaning over and explaining, you know, what a midpoint was and how, okay, this is now the low point at the end of the second act. Oh, you notice that sentence? Let's watch for where that setup is going to be paid off in the third act. So, and and she just has devoured that stuff Um finished a film major at Barnard and is now herself working for a production company here in New York City. So one of four. Um, but you know what's a good lesson that my other daughters have taught me? Now we're way off topic, and this may be of no interest to many listeners, but about two years ago, two of my other daughters came to me and said, I feel like it was around the pandemic, and they said, Dad, just because it's easier for you to talk to Sophie because you're interested in the same things, we want to talk. So maybe just remember that even though we don't talk about the same things that you're most interested in, we want to talk just as much. So just reminding you to spread it around. And that was like, that was a good note. That was a necessary note. And I'm happy I'm also in a family where my daughters can say that to me without anger, mm -hmm. knowing I'll hear it without anger. And I think it's made me a little bit better in the years since. So that's another great thing is just a family that is very comfortable naming it when you can be better. No, oh, I love that. And I, I'll, I'll credit your wife with some of that too, right? Yeah, for sure. Serena, for sure. You've been very vulnerable about feeling um, like a little imposter syndrome on the on the way up, right? You you've talked about like your daughter had to talk you through you're having a nervous breakdown before you were gonna pitch something to Spielberg, like, and you you mentioned it a little bit earlier in the interview about like, oh, am I gonna work again? Which I think is 
you know, everybody in this business feels that way, right? There is a little bit of that that kind of goes hand in hand with with being an artist. But do you still feel insecure when when you go to work or about something? And then if so, how do you get past that? I don't feel insecure anymore. Uh, I do finally feel like uh, I know who I am as a storyteller. And I'm really, really grateful that in the last... Uh, in the last eight years in particular, I've been able to transition from the early success in my kind of, you know, my career where I was the family comedy guy. But thanks to this range of projects that range from Arrival and Stranger Things and Spectacular Now and Free Guy and All the Light We Cannot See, that I'm getting to do all the different kinds of stuff that I love to watch as an audience member. And uh, so I don't have that insecurity. I don't have that same yearning. I no longer feel misunderstood uh, or underestimated Mm. the way I did for many years. Even when I was doing really well, I wasn't sure that I would get to show all of the colors that I felt were inside me. And, uh, And so that feels very fulfilling. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that Spielberg meeting and on that job, which was a movie called Real Steel starring Hugh Jackman like 11 years ago, um, I was sitting next to Steven once by way of maybe answering the question. He said, uh, he goes, you direct like you're sitting in the audience. And that froze me because, yes, A, it's Spielberg making an observation, but it's that he found in one sentence the truth of what I now confidently know I do for a living. I direct like I'm sitting in the audience. And that is the closest thing that I have to talent. And I'm grateful for it. And I I, I finally embrace it. And I think it's resulting in some work that I can feel proud about. But, but Spielberg articulating that um, felt like, oh, that's that's maybe what I am. No more, but no less. Mm. And that's enough. All right. My last question, and I ask, I'm asking everyone this season the same question. What is a, a hobby or a passion that you have that's outside of your work? This is a mortifying question. Um, that was the intent. Is, I hope it is mortifying. Yeah. <laughs> it's mortifying because the answer is a real problem, Krista, because my wife... Serena sometimes jokes like, Sean, get a hobby, do. And I'm like, why? I have my job that I am obsessed with and I'm super into you and I'm into my girls. That's a full life. So the truth is that I probably need one. Like I'm at a, I'm at an age where I should have some other interest. And believe me, Serena's tried. Here's a guitar complete with lessons. Here's a tennis racket complete with a pro. Nothing takes. So um, I'm in the market. I'm in the hobby market <laughs> as we speak. Oh, I love that. And what a great note to end on. Sean, it's great to talk to you. I can't wait until this I get to fun. see you again. I'm excited for the world to get to see it and see all the love uh, and care that got put into it. So thank you for this conversation, Krista. All the Light We Cannot See is streaming now on Netflix. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Krista Smith, your host and creator of the show. Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to our coordinator, Alyssa Hillman. 
Please subscribe, rate, and review Skip Intro wherever you've been listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to NetflixQ.com for more. That's NetflixQueUE.com.